Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by thedispatch.com. And speaking of thedispatch.com, we have a big post-election event planned, November 9th and 10th. You can go to whatsnextevent.com and check it out. Tickets are $100, and they include a new complimentary subscription to The Dispatch. So far, we've got folks like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Senator Ben Sass, Senator Tim Scott. We'll be talking about what that election actually means, the future of the Republican Party, Congress under a Trump or Biden administration, and foreign policy, the economy, COVID, all of it. So we hope you join us. That's whatsnextevent.com, November 9th and 10th. All right, today we have a very special guest, Josh Kroshauer. Josh is the National Journal's daily senior national political columnist. He pens the weekly Against the Grain column. And he's super fun and friendly, and we love talking to Josh. Let's dive right in. Josh, welcome to the pod. Biggest takeaway from the debate last night. Biggest takeaway is that the race hasn't changed much at all. <laughs> but look, that is the performance from President Trump. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was about as good as you'll get from the president. And would would that type of performance have made a difference if it had been his first debate performance? Yeah, I mean, look, the Republicans across the board from the pre- from the president's own staff to Senate and House Republican operatives saw their numbers collapse in the aftermath of, of the first debate. In fact, that was one of the bigger uh, set of movements this entire year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they would have liked to have seen that version of President Trump uh, in, in the first debate. Now, I don't think it would have made the difference between, you know, uh, President Trump making this a, a close race and, and, and where the race stands right now. But look, that degree of discipline we don't often see from the president. And I, I imagine there was a little bit of prep, a, a little bit of uh, training to, to get him not to um, interrupt, not to scream. Um, and, and then the mute, maybe the mute, the, the threat of a mute button maybe did have an impact <laughs> after all. <laughs> I did see one funny thing on uh, Twitter where because he was muted, he would be tweeting out his interruptions. Thought that was a good <laughs> good idea. <laughs> uh, Steve, come on in. Um, Josh, do you buy that that this race is um, sort of where the polls suggest it is? Uh, do we do you think that we're basically right? I mean, if you looked at the race starting in January, um, if you look at the polling, then it's been pretty stable. Um, with Joe Biden having had, you know, roughly a six point lead nationally, um, that lead grew a, a little bit. And uh, here we are less than two weeks out and things look pretty much the same. Is is that is that right? Should we believe that the race is that stable? And does that mean that it's effectively over? Uh, it is. It has been stable. In fact, Trump's job approval ratings throughout his presidency have been remarkably stable. They don't go below 40 percent. They don't go much above 45, 46 percent. So, uh, you know, you're not going to see these wild swings uh, in, 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 in what, what's going on uh, in the presidential race just because almost half the country not, isn't going to be voting for Trump under any circumstance. Now, the, the, the one caveat to that is, you know, a point or two in, in job approval for President Trump is like a 10-point jump for, for a lot of other uh, traditional presidents. And um, 
you know, the, 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 the chances of Republicans holding the Senate, uh, if Trump is at 43, 44, 45%, the higher it gets to 45, Republicans have a, have a fighting chance to keep their majority. When you see a performance like we did in that first debate in Cleveland, uh, all of a sudden, Republicans were worried about holding seats in Kansas and Texas and South Carolina, Lindsey Graham's seat. So, the, you know, I, I think the best case for the president is for him to be within striking distance in those bellwether states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida. And, you know, there were moments over the summer where he he was tied ahead in, in, in some or, 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 you know, in at least a few of those, those big battleground states. But um, what, what, what a lot of Republicans are seeing right now is they just want to stop the bleeding. Uh, they're, they're, they're at risk of getting blown out. Trump is at risk of facing a landslide election, um, a landslide defeat. And they just want to get him back in the game, give Republicans a chance to cut their losses in the House, perhaps hold the Senate. What would be the first thing you're looking for on election night that will make you go, uh-oh, the polls were not right? Well, look, Florida, the, the, the vote counting in a lot of states is going to be all over the map. So we're not going to be seeing Pennsylvania results, Wisconsin results until late, if not after election night. Florida and North Carolina, on the other hand, are going to probably be coming in pretty early. Um, so I'm going to be looking closely at Florida. Uh, Trump can't win re-election if he doesn't win Florida. And Republicans have shown quite a bit of resilience, not just the president in 2016, but Senator Scott, Governor uh, DeSantis in, in, in the 2018 elections. If Florida looks close or if Trump looks like he actually may have an advantage, we're going to be in for a long night, maybe a long week. Uh, but I think it's very possible that we could see a collapse with Trump standing with seniors. It'll show up in Florida and we'll be ready to call the race pr pretty early if, if Florida ends up in Joe Biden's column. So I think Florida, I mean, we all remember Tim Russert with the whiteboard, Florida, Florida, Florida. I actually <laughs> think as far as predicting who's going to win the race, uh, given how early Florida is likely going to report, I would say Florida is the state, state to watch. And Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager, has tried to make the case to reporters that they don't need Florida. There's a path without Florida. You're not buying that. No, I mean, they're, they're, they're not just... Uh, Florida has 29 electoral votes, so it just is such a huge electoral prize, number one. But it also contains demographic groups that should be in President Trump's corner if, if he's going to have a good night. You know, uh, seniors, he's been making inroads with Cuban-Americans, other Hispanic-Americans in Florida. Um, so if he can't win Florida, it's ball. I mean, he's not going to win Arizona. He's not going to win uh, Pennsylvania is not going to win Wisconsin. It's it's a, it's a it's not just a bellwether, but it's an early warning sign of, of where this race is headed. And we've we've seen some indications that he's made made uh, strides with uh, Hispanic voters in in Florida, not just Cubans, sort of beyond Cubans. Is there are, can he make enough progress with Hispanic voters to offset the, the kinds of losses uh, he might be seeing if polls are accurate among seniors? Yeah, I mean, if he if if seniors end up saying, yeah, you know, I think he's a little crazy and he hasn't handled the pandemic all that well, but I still agree with him on, on a lot of the policy. And I, and I watched the debate and that's the kind of Trump that I voted for in, in, in 2016. You know, maybe he cuts down his margins and, and does better with groups, uh, namely uh, Hispanics in Florida that, that he, he, he struggled with in 2016. So, yeah, I mean, you could see it's all it's all a margin game. And, and if he can cut down his losses, maybe narrowly win seniors in Florida and, and do better than expected among um, Hispanics. Sure. I mean, there's a pathway to, to victory. Florida, by the way, I, the polling was of all the states it, that were polling was off 
2018 polling in Florida yeah. was way off. I mean, not, yeah. I don't think there was a single poll in the final few months that showed Ron DeSantis winning over uh, Andrew Gillum and, and likewise uh, Scott over Nelson. So I would caution. I mean, the one thing I would caution and, you know, I'm offering a pretty bullish Biden pro Biden forecast, but you know, the, the polling, you know, I, I don't think the polling was as bad as people make it out to be in 2016. I think a lot of it was how people analyzed the polls and, and didn't look at that, that Midwestern blue wall breaking, but it, it has been really tough for pollsters to measure turnout levels and enthusiasm among blue collar white voters. And that's, that, that's going to have implications across the board. Now, when you're down by, you know, eight points in Wisconsin, six points in Pennsylvania, I don't think that's enough to make up that gap. But that's the one word of caution that I, that I would, I, I would say, which is, you know, Florida polling was off a lot of, because a lot of that, that conservative vote, uh, the enthusiasm, uh, from, from that conservative base wasn't measured in a lot of the polling in 2018 and 2016. Speaking of which, we're looking at potentially not just record turnout, but like, whoa, record turnout. Record turnout, underlined, bolded, et cetera. Uh, Echelon Insights, our friend Kristen Soltis-Anderson, she's estimating turnout will be 157 million people. That's 20 million more than 2016. Uh, A, do you think that that sort of enthusiasm turnout level uh, benefits more Joe Biden or Donald Trump? And B, do you think the polls are adequately able to take into account 20 million extra people joining the electorate? You know, it's a little too early to say. My, my gut would say high turnout favors Democrats just because, um, you know, their big problem in 2016 was not engaging African-American voters in, in Michigan and in the Midwest and Pennsylvania. Um, they, they, they need turnout among younger voters, among among non-white voters. Uh, and, and there are signs in the early vote that, that they're gain, gaining that enthusiasm. And those are also all the groups that are the lowest uh, probability voters. You know, when I've talked about vote scoring before, there's people who are going to vote no matter what in every election, and you want to hit those low-hanging fruit, but sort of the way to win an election is to get to that higher fruit. Your lowest probability voters who don't turn out for every election just because that's the type of citizens they are. And so when you see high turnout, it means both sides, or at least one side, is really getting some of that high fruit. Well, and, and that's totally right, Sarah. And I would caution, though, that my colleague Dave Wasserman at the at the Cook Report has calculated that a lot of the non-voters, a lot of the folks who don't show up usually, are actually working class Republican vote, like the Republican voters in the Midwest in particular. So if we, you know, I I, I always am, am skeptical. I know a lot of people are trying to crunch these early vote numbers in Texas and Georgia and a lot of these big battleground states. My experience with that is that everyone's predictions in the last few elections on the early vote have been way, way, way off. And it's because it's really hard to understand whether you're just extrapolating election day votes. I mean, this in a pandemic, a lot more people are voting early. A lot more people, you know, for, for health reasons, want to cast their ballot before election day. And there's just been a lot more attention. Early vote, early vote, you can early vote. So it's in people's faces. So I think we're going to have really high turnout, record turnout, perhaps. But a it's hard to tell where, I mean, it's hard to read where the, 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 what it means for election day, because it could be that a lot of people who just normally vote on election day are voting early. And we saw that in 2016, the early vote numbers on uh, from the early vote in North Carolina and Florida was, were looking very, very favorable for Hillary Clinton. And then we realized they just cannibalized the Democratic vote and, and all of the election day vote was Republican. And it ended up, you know, giving giving Trump, a, 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 you know, the surprising victories in those two states. Is there a scenario where 
Joe Biden wins in a manner consistent with the polling that we're seeing now. Let's just assign him the states where he's leading, assign Trump the states where he's leading and call it the election. That's a pretty healthy Joe Biden victory if 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 that were the result. Is there a scenario if we have a presidential result that's anything like that where Republicans keep the Senate? Yeah. If you see, if you believe the polls, if you have a somewhat um, cautious uh, anticipation of where where things are headed, you know, Republicans have a chance to hold the Senate, though I I would say their odds are well below 50-50. A lot of the Senate races aren't taking place in in, uh, presidential battlegrounds. Colorado is a state that Republicans have all but conceded, Cory Gardner's seat. Um, You've got Susan Collins in Maine. That, that was the bellwether. That was the seat that everyone was going to look at to figure out which party would hold the majority. And even Susan Collins's campaign, you know, I, I just talked to uh, some top level folks there last week and, you know, they're not particularly optimistic about how things are headed. And that's putting it mildly. Um, Arizona is a battleground, but Martha McSally has been consistently running well behind President Trump in a state that Joe Biden looks like he'll carry. So that that's, you know, you could have a best case scenario for President Trump you know, he, it's a close race, but those three seats still are going to look awfully tenuous. And then everything comes down to, you know, whether a late breaking sex scandal in or North Carolina can preserve a seat that, that Republicans a few weeks ago thought was lost. Tom Tillis' seat in North Carolina. I actually think that that is a real race. I think it's closer than some of the polls suggest. Um, but ultimately that they're hoping on a Democratic blunder at the last month of a campaign to save the Senate. That so I so I think the Senate is is in rough shape, but because of, of some of these individual circumstances, the individual candidates, you know, you could see Republicans holding fifty one seats. I can't see any more than that. So if it's a massive Biden landslide, uh, he he win. This is the the proverbial blue wave. What seats might we be talking about on election night that we haven't spent enough time talking about? in these weeks and months before the election? Number one, Montana. Uh, but that race hasn't really gotten a whole lot of attention. It should. Uh, the president's numbers in Montana have taken a nosedive. He's going to win Montana, but not by the, the margins. He, he won in 2016. And Democrats probably have one of their best candidates in the country and the current governor, who's, who's still quite popular. Uh, so, I mean, that, I was talking to Republicans last month who thought the partisanship of Montana would be probably be enough to help Senator Steve Daines uh, win and win by enough of a margin not not to sweat it. When Trump collapsed after his first debate, uh, that was when there was a little bit of panic because Trump, Trump's margin was narrower and all of a sudden uh, there were enough split ticket voters to give Bullock a real fighting chance. Uh, so Montana is one of those races, I think, if it's a really good night for Democrats, uh, it, it's definitely possible Montana could flip. Uh, I also think Texas is one of these... There's always uh, an expensive uh, district or state where parties, you know, it, it's not in either party's interest to say we're going to play in Texas because you don't know how Texas is going to Texas is going to shape up until uh, late in the election process. But you have at least a half dozen House races where Democrats are spending big money. You have an outside group now pledging 20 plus million dollars against John Cornyn in the Senate race. Um, and you have the, the Democratic candidate belatedly raising a lot of money make that race a, a, a real one. I, I, st- I still think Cornyn is the favorite. And I think the comments that Biden made about the energy industry helped Cornyn quite a bit in the final stretch. But if there's a surprise, that, that if there's a huge blue wave 
Um, I think Texas is both in play at the presidential level and, and Cornyn can't wow. take his race for granted either. When you're looking at these Senate races, which candidates are doing interesting things either to embrace Trump or distance themselves for Trump that could distinguish them from a wave election? Well, the interesting thing is that no one on their paid advertising, like no one's airing an ad in these Senate races, even in the bluer states, saying, look, I, I, I have my disagreements with Trump. We agree on policy. I disagree with this. You know, I'm, I'm, I want to be a check on, on a Democratic uh, administration. You're not, you're not seeing that in paid advertisements. You see Ben Sass make his comments to, to a town hall. You see, you know, Tom Tillis made an, did an interview in the last couple of weeks where he alluded to a check on a possible Biden presidency. Um, you heard Susan Collins, you know, is uncomfortable when you bring up uh, Trump in her debates. But you haven't seen paid advertising uh, distancing or attacking Trump because Republicans still need Trump voters. That would be still politically suicidal. Um, so, you know, I, I, this is the, the, the challenge, the dilemma for Republicans. Um, Martha McSally is, is, to me, the textbook example of someone who just played her hand poorly in a state that actually has a lot of persuadable, moderate Republican voters, uh, she tied herself to the base from the get-go. She, you know, embraced the president, uh, campaigned with him, uh, even attacked a CNN reporter to show her conservative bona fides last year. And now in the final month of the campaign, she was at her first debate and she was asked whether she was proud of her uh, support for President Trump. And she refused to answer the question. Well, I mean, you should have said that from the get-go, because if you're bailing on Trump even subtly in the final stretch, that's not going to help help any Republican politically. And uh, now Republicans are realizing that it's almost impossible to thread that needle of being an independent voice while also not alienating and, t- and ticking off Republican voters. You know, I, I uh, would expect that as we see these elections close in the last 10, 11 days, we're likely to see Republicans not only not move away from President Trump and their paid advertising, um, as so I think you're right on that, but in fact, embrace him more tightly in part because we've seen such uh, a a big Democratic turnout in these early votes. I mean, that is one place where I think the early votes can matter. If you're if you're a Republican consultant or a Republican ad maker and you're trying to figure out where you put very limited resources on your ad buys at this point, you, you can't afford to even if your candidate would rather have a little distance from Trump, you're not at this point appealing to persuadable voters. You're making a pitch to the base voters and you want to get them out to support your candidate. So I would expect that we'll see even more red meat as the as the election closes, which isn't always the way that, that things go. Yeah. And the thinking all along is that if you break from the president, you're, you're toast. You're, you, you know, you, you're hoping against hope that Martha McSally can ride Trump's coattails in Arizona. He, you know, the thinking was that Trump can win Arizona. It's a winnable state. We don't want to screw anything up. So we're just going to keep our fingers crossed and hope the president can carry along other Republican senators. When Trump hit rock bottom after the first debate, all of a sudden there, 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 there was total panic because um, Trump was dragging those same senators yeah. down with him. Yeah. And uh, like even Lindsey Graham, for example, who I think will do fine. I think he'll win um, re-election in South Carolina. But it's a, you know, very, he has a very well-funded, talented opponent. And at his debate and in his campaign uh, ads, he was talking about his relationship with Nikki Haley. He was talking about uh, how he, he worked so closely with Senator Tim Scott. So even, even Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, 
I think smartly was trying to find a way not to talk about Trump, but subtly signal he's not 100 percent part of the, the Trump party, even though you know, his record would suggest otherwise in the last four years. Let's talk. Let's let's assume Steve's hypothetical that the polls are all correct and that Biden wins the states that are in his column right now and Trump wins the states that are in his column right now, which would be a huge electoral victory for Joe Biden. Is that a mandate for Joe Biden's agenda or the Democratic agenda, including if they win the Senate and so have a unified government, or is actually a larger margin worse for the mandate because it will show such an anti-Trump vote and not just a pro-Biden vote? That's a great question, Sarah. It's the, the question that Joe Biden's campaign, and, 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 and if he wins, his administration is going to have to deal with from day one. And it's, it's almost a blessing and a curse to win big. It's, you know, if you have Senate seats and you win, you win 54 Senate seats, for example, all of a sudden you have political capital and you have the, the power, the senators, to perhaps pass very progressive legislation, but that temptation can also sap your political capital very quickly. So it, 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 I always like to say, like the, the leader of the party sets the tone and, and really uh, controls the politics in Washington. And it's going to be fascinating to see how uh, the Bi- if Biden wins, how his administration operates, because he's not going to have an easy time balancing between his own party's left wing and his pragmatic instincts. You know, the energy issue was a great example last night at the debate where, and, and you know, we saw this with court packing too, but the energy issue when Joe Biden said last night that he supported, at, you know, in the next 15 to 30 years phasing out oil, um, that is not a position, even though he's, he's, he's had that for, for several weeks, it's not a position that, that you want to advertise politically because there are at least, you know, 15 to 20 House Democrat or Democratic candidates that are in energy producing districts. They're trying to expand that House majority in states like Texas. Uh, Alaska is a battleground this year. Uh, you know, e- even New Mexico, there's a huge race in New Mexico that Democrats are defending. So that is, you already saw within minutes of the debate ending, uh, I think at least two or three uh, House Democrats and Democratic candidates criticized Biden for that position. Uh, you also have, you know, Senate candidates in Texas and Alaska. I know those are reach states for the, for the Democrats, but if you want to build that big, broad majority, and have a have a big tent, you know, you can't uh, totally ignore the the views of, of of those those candidates that are in in more conservative states that are that are very winnable for Democrats this year. So that that's that's a sample of the dilemma that that Biden's going to face. That where does he want to spend his political capital? And I think, like you said from the outset, there's going to be a temptation if he if he wins the Senate, uh, not just with a bare majority, but if he gets 52, 53 Senate Senate seats, the Democrats do. You know, there's going to be a big temptation for the progressives in the party to go full bore and to do everything they can to get what they want. So the the economist, I want to just flip this now. The economist has uh, its its forecast. I think it's at this point something like ninety three percent likelihood that Donald Trump is is not reelected, that Joe Biden is elected. Seven percent Donald Trump. I don't know what the what what uh, the five thirty eight forecast is right now, but it's it's not that, but it's not off. I mean, the, the, all of the forecasting, most of the people who look at this, the Republican and Democratic strategists I talk to, um, everybody thinks Joe Biden is likely to win. If he doesn't win and we're having this conversation in two weeks, what's just happened? 
Well, number one, the polling industry is going out of business. <laughs> it's done, right? It's I mean, over. Not been, I mean, I mean, we're not just talking about like I actually think that Trump's margins of, or Biden's margins are going to be a little narrower than what we're seeing in the polls. But you know, you look at the the Wisconsin polls, the Michigan polls, the Pennsylvania polls. You know, Biden is up by an average of about six to ten points, yep. right? So that's not just a small number. That that would be a seismic collapse of of where 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 polling is, and and you know, it it it, it, it would totally put people like me out of business and uh, and certainly the pollsters because you know this, this is shaping up to be a possible landslide election I, I i was i didn't anticipate trump's victory per se but i could see the trends of blue collar voters in the midwest moving in trump's direction in the final weeks of the campaign republicans were actually i, I got a call from uh, a top house republican official uh, worried that they weren't hitting their numbers in the suburbs that they were underperforming in the midwest so I, there were warning signs uh, in in the final weeks of 2016 that i wrote about and, uh, you know, I'm hearing the opposite this time around. Um, you know, I'm hearing th- those same congressional Republican operatives seeing Biden expanding his lead, seeing candidates they thought could win uh, starting to lose lose ground and, and they've never been uh, able to catch up. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I, it's the position I was in in four years ago wasn't that I thought Trump was going to win, but I, I could see it being a close election where we'd be up and, and counting votes late in the Midwest. You know, I, I just don't see that this time around, not just based on the public polling, but based on uh, where parties are spending money, where their internal polls are, uh, where the fundamentals of this race stand. So, I mean, that this would if, if, if Trump was able to come from behind and win, it, it would be an even bigger shock than what happened in 2016. If uh, Joe Biden wins by a small margin and the polls were wrong, will anyone care? Even like the polls were wrong, but the outcome was right. Are we just sort of fine with that? <laughs> <laughs> we should care. I mean, it's not. I mean, look, I, I, there. What keeps me up is that there is a scenario where the margins are a lot closer in the Midwest, in in some of these in Arizona, in some of these these close battleground states. Maybe seniors come home to the president like 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 they did in 2016. It's just that the margins are just so. I mean, they are they are more consistent and they are um, bigger. And and then the fundamentals are different. Trump was the insurgent candidate in 2016. He's the incumbent running on a record in the middle of a pandemic, which uh, majority of voters, including some Republicans, don't think he's handled well. Assume for a second that it's close. Uh, Where does the Republican Party move after a close loss? I think everyone sort of has a sense, like if it's some blowout, they abandoned Trump. Oh, you you know, our bad, terrible experiment. We'll go, you know, we'll we'll start talking about limited spending again or something. But what if it's a relatively close loss, two and a half point loss, let's say? That's a good question. And that's I mean, that that really is the the sixty four thousand dollar question of what does the Republican look like in a post Trump era, if he loses, and, and it may make a difference, the you know depending on what the margin is, you know, I, if he loses closely, but it's not, uh, if, if we're not up into, you know, or we're not spending a week counting votes, if, if it's if it's close but decisive, um, you know, I, I still think that the political incentives in the long term for, are going to force Republicans to reckon with what message they want to to, to utilize to win back uh, the presidency, to win back potentially the Senate. Um, I, I wrote a column last week. I, I find this actually to be a very uh, overlooked statistic. 90% of Republicans in the House right now are white men. 90% of, about 90% of their top opportunities in the House, including in very conservative districts, 
are women or non-white candidates. Yeah, it was a fascinating column. It was very, very interesting. Tell us what you think that means. It, it, well, I, I talked to Republican strategists who acknowledge that even in conservative districts, even in, in areas that like President Trump, uh, running with the, the same, I mean, being, being a, um, you know, a, a, running a boorish campaign, you know, dealing with embracing conspiracy theories like QAnon, that is a huge political uh, problem. I mean, it's not just, it's not just, I mean, if, if that's, if that's the future of the Republican party, they're not going to win anywhere. Right. Except and, in and, Georgia. And, right. I mean, if you look at the, the Georgia Senate election, the, the, the Luffler Collins election, it's like they're, they've spent the past week trying to out conspiracy one another, like the, 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 uh, the endorsement, uh, from Marjorie Taylor green, then, uh, for Kelly Leffler, then Doug Collins gets Mike Flynn to endorse him and does a, uh, a a poster, a, a mailing with all of the, uh, Russia gate figures. I mean, it's, (laughs) that's the one place it seems to be. I, I would, I, I would. That race is weird because it's essentially a primary, uh, right? So, so I, and that's and that's the problem, Steve. That that's the problem that incentives in primaries, even in bluish states and districts, are still like in Virginia, where you know where I'm from. Our Republican Party used to be the party of you know Tom Davis and Bob McDonnell, and even if, even losing, even even after suffering some embarrassing defeats, we're, we're the party of what Corey Stewart and and yeah. you know and. You look at some of the statements coming out of the state party, it's become Trumpified as, as more and more uh, moderate voters and mainstream voters leave the Republican Party. So it, it, it's a challenge. But, um, you know, e- even even that, I mean, I, I think they're going to change their message in, for the runoff in January. So but 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 the bigger problem is that even if that's the political dynamic in a primary, you're still going to lose valuable support if that's your message in many, many states, many, many districts across the country in general elections. And at some point, I think the rubber's going to, I mean, you can't, you're, you're not, there's no, there's no, there's not going to be support for, for being a fringe uh, minority party. You're going to need to build support to, to try to get back power. Um, and, and I also think that being in the minority often, you know, we saw what happened in 20, uh, 2010 and, and the run up uh, to the, the midterms 10 years ago. Uh, you know, we, there were so many essays and articles about the Republican Party being extinct and the Tea Party driving the Republican Party off the cliff. Uh, back then, it was you remember uh, Sharon Angle and Christine O'Donnell. I'm, I'm not, not a, witch. a witch. I mean that. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a, a fundamental difference between those candidates and some of the crazy the Marjorie Taylor Greens that we're seeing now. Um, but Republicans won 63 House seats in, in 2010. You know they 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 lost a few Senate races because of the crazies, but they still gained a bunch of Senate seats too. So you know I, I I'm more sanguine. I think for being in the opposition. It helps Republicans. And I think if they listen to the right leadership and we'll, it's going to be a nasty civil war that's taking place in the next few years if they lose, lose power. But I think there, I'm a little more sanguine. I'm a little more bullish that Republicans being in the minority, being the, op- the opposition, um, will help them get back, uh, some, some. Can I go loss. one, can I go one level, one level deeper on that right then? You, you mentioned the, the, the post, uh, election potential for civil war and and the right leadership. There's an interesting Politico article earlier this week about um, the likelihood that Kevin McCarthy will remain Republican leader after the election, almost regardless. I mean, I think they had a caveat. Well, if Republicans lose more than 15 seats, um, McCarthy might sort of have a challenger. But basically, it's all but 
it's all but over with and McCarthy's got this, it's a shoe in What's very interesting to me is if you go back to October of 2015, when Kevin McCarthy was uh, going to be Speaker of the House, there was a very similar article where he said, I've got the votes. This is a done deal. This is happening. And then three days later, he bowed out because he didn't have the votes. What's going on there? And what do you think about the likelihood that Kevin McCarthy will remain the Republican leader if Republicans have a bad result? So as you know, Steve, I'm a big sports fan. I watch a lot of football, baseball. You know, the great thing about sports is that you know, bad teams fire their coaches, bad teams shake up leadership. You know, you, you, there's a, it's actually the best meritocracy left in America, uh, sport, sports. You don't see that in, in a lot of other areas of American life, Correct. especially politics, right? Especially, um, you know, leadership uh, in, in Congress. Um, you know, look, Kevin McCarthy, if, if, if things prevail as, as, as they look, if things, you know, turn out as they look right now, you know, Republicans would, uh, you know, lose the House and then lose a even bigger minority, uh, being a bigger minority than anyone ever expected that, that, that in 2021. Yeah, I, I've got to think there's going to be internal political pressure on McCarthy, just if that is ends up being the reality. If they lose House seats after already suffering an embarrassing um, shellacking in 2018, uh, you know, even 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 more. I mean, th- th- that same article in Politico uh, suggested that even the um, committee, ch- National Republican Congressional Committee Chairman Tom Emmer, who's the guy who hires staff, who decides where the money's spent, who presides over uh, the, the the races for the House Republicans. I mean, if they lose more seats and he's kept as committee chairman, I, I just have a hard time believing that. Um, uh, you know, I think there's going to be pressure on. on, on I think there's a, yeah, happens. there's an interesting. Th- this is now we are. This is turning into a, a, a hopeless DC Insider show. And uh, apologies for our listeners who didn't want to go there. Um, having said that, uh, <laughs> go, going deeper, um, yeah, I think. But I think there's some. I mean, Tom Emmer, who runs the National Republican Congressional Committee. <clears throat> has had that unenviable job of trying to raise and allocate money to help Republicans win House races around the country in a bad political environment. And at the same time, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy has been helping to raise money and push money toward President Trump, um, which I think has made Emmer's job more difficult. And I think that could be a factor in in these post-election discussions if Republicans don't do well. Well, and, and coming full circle to, to where we started the conversation, um, Elise Stefanik is another contender for the the, the you know the committee chairmanship uh, for the campaign committee. Um, you know, I, I, she's made a big big push to try to recruit more women, increase the diversity within the Republican caucus. She's also been sort of a shapeshifter herself as a moderate when she was first elected, and now being a loyal Trump ally in these final uh, months of the you know the final stage of the Trump administration. Um, you know, I I think Republicans would be nuts not to have someone like that in leadership, given their issues, uh, that we've just been talking about with diversity with, with, uh, you know, only having 13 women in in their whole conference of 200. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I just think there obviously are internal politics that are separate from the external politics, but, you know, Stefanik would make a lot of sense yet. There are these like, you know, Republicans can often, uh, you know, they'd always miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens again. There's a theory in microbiology, for instance, but really just science in general, uh, the red queen theory in which basically a parasite and host will always reach equilibrium and evolve to be sort of their most competitive selves. And if one gets an advantage, the other one will evolve to meet that advantage. And 
that's really how our two-party system has worked now for decades since the sort of initial realignment uh, back in 1860. Um, And yet, I think we're about to see potentially a huge democratic win and, you know, leap forward on that treadmill, if you will. Why is it the case that we then don't see a democratic party or no one thinks that we'll see a democratic party say, great, we're going to keep the Republicans out and just permanently take this part of the electorate by actually moving closer to the center and like holding them Heisman style out to the far fringe of the right where that's the only place they can win votes. And instead there's this assumption that when they win this big majority, they'll actually move to the left because they can do these things. When in fact, that's what gives them the opening, the Republicans, the opening to take back some of their fallen electorate. So biology was my worst subject in school, but, <laughs> me, but, but, but I, I think you make a really, really important point and I'm going to switch it to physics. Cause I, this is a point I make a lot of times about our politics. Um, for every political action, there's a reaction the other direction. And a lot of people blame Trump for all of our political problems, but I, I wrote about this years ago, but Obama, when he was president, enjoyed kind of baiting the right, enjoyed trolling the right taking positions that were liberal, but then making them out to be more mainstream and then enjoying as the Republicans kind of went further and further to the Tea Party, went further and further to the, to the right and, and, and use that to his advantage, you know, and, and including in that 2012 election. Uh, and Trump sort of has done the same thing, except it's on steroids. It's, it's never giving anything to the other side and, and, make, and, and trying to gaslight and troll them to, to, their, to make them even more extreme. So now you, you basically have two parties that are pay, playing to their extremes. I think the biggest, you know, I think this is actually an encouraging sign. The fact that Joe Biden won the nomination for the Democrats is running on this platform of normalcy of, you know, working together with Republicans and Democrats. You may think that's bunk. You may think that's just rhetoric. But I think Biden fundamentally is a different type of politician than we've seen in quite some time. And I think if he does win the presidency, you know, everything flows from the president. And you're right. Like he, he could, you know, see that having big majorities in Washington could, could, you know, play his hand in a more progressive direction, but he also could kind of use that to his advantage. He'll have a lot of political capital to spend and he'll try to get Republicans to, 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 to work on deals relating to the stimulus spending, healthcare uh, expansion in a crisis. I mean, there, there are opportunities for him to kind of reset this, this crazy that's been taking place in Washington for some time. And if that's the case, I, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I think he holds a lot of the keys to the, I think he could uh, enshrine a, a pretty, permanent, or I shouldn't say permanent, but a, a longer term Democratic majority if he decides not to go full, you know, full full left in, in his first four years in office. Yeah, I mean, Steve, I think the Democrats have an opportunity to relegate Republicans into sort of a permanent minority status, maybe almost a loyal opposition status for a decade or more. Yeah, well, you use biology and, and Josh used physics. Let me use chemistry. Um, no, <laughs> I, I know so podcast. little. I know so little about chemistry. <laughs> I can't even make a joke about chemistry. <laughs> that was not my my best subject. Yeah, I think that, I mean, this will be if Biden wins, um, this will be one of the most interesting um, things to explore. You look at the themes that he's sounded to close the election. You know, he is borrowing Barack Obama's 2004 convention speech, no red America, no blue America. We're all the United States of America. I'm going to be the president for everyone. The the closing question from Kristen Welker of NBC that the debate on Thursday night was, 
what will you say in your inaugural address to the people who didn't vote for you? And Trump gave, you know, stream of consciousness kind of rambling answer in which he sort of ended up being angry at Democrats. Uh, Biden gives this answer that is reminiscent of Barack Obama. I think, Sarah, you're right. I think there's a huge opportunity for for Biden and for Democrats to position themselves as the sane party by um, pushing away or rejecting the the impulses to go super far left. And we, I think, if you look at the way that Biden has talked about these things he's given sort of mixed signals about what he might do. On the one hand, he's made very clear that he beat Bernie Sanders, that he didn't run on Medicare for all, that he hasn't embraced some of the, the um, far left uh, policy agenda items uh, of those in his party. On the other hand, the Joe Biden, who's running as a moderate in the modern Democratic Party, is really pretty far left on policy. I mean, you look at his spending programs. You look at what he's talking about with respect to taxes, um, you know, sort of half embrace of a Green New Deal or parts of a Green New Deal. He's embraced a lot of things that even as a a moderate in the the current Democratic Party, I think make him pretty far left looking back historically over the last four or five decades. I don't know if he can pull that off, portray himself as a moderate and govern as a as a liberal, but I don't think that he will have people forget that that Barack Obama, when Barack Obama won, Republicans were afraid to criticize him at all. I remember writing a piece about this for the Weekly Standard. O- Obama comes into office and immediately gets to work on this stimulus bill. And remember, originally he invited Republicans to participate. He said, Give me your ideas. I'm open to your ideas. Come and talk to me. We'll help. And it turned out that he didn't really want to do that. Nancy Pelosi basically uh, was given the keys to the project and and took over and made it kind of a wish list for um, lefty Democratic uh, constituencies. And Obama went along. Obama went along and and was sort of the main salesman on this. You talk to Republican leaders at the time, they did not want to criticize Barack Obama. I remember there was, it was either a press conference or maybe it was an interview I did with, with Mitch McConnell and I kept trying to bait him to say uh, Barack Obama's name, to criticize. And he wouldn't criticize Obama. He would say Democrats in Washington or Nancy Pelosi or whomever. They didn't want to criticize Barack Obama. Joe Biden is not going to enjoy that. I don't think he has the kind of magnetic personality and, and the charisma that Obama had. So if he comes in, I think, Sarah, your earlier point that uh, people will say, look, this was basically an anti-Trump vote. You don't have the kind of mandate you do. I think that'll make it harder for, for Biden to both run to the left and try to implement his agenda while at the same time reaching out for Republicans. I, I would just add, and I think, Steve, that I agree 100% with what you just said. I, I would say that um, the Biden, if Biden is elected, you circle the Midwest. And, and, and those, are, those are folks who don't love Biden, but, but have grown dissatisfied with Trump. They've gone back and forth in these these last few elections. Uh, you know, I, I think Biden has an opportunity, if only because he would be taking office in the middle of a crisis. And I, I think there is a hunger for help. If, if we don't see a pre a lame duck stimulus that's passed, I mean, there's an opportunity for him to, to own that in the first months of his administration. And I think his core issue of health care, I mean, they're, they're, that's a, that's a yeah. much more pronounced issue that has more support, I think, than it did when Obama tried and to And Republicans have left them a massive opening on it. I mean, Republicans they've, they've left have this no, opening. Yeah. 
so I think, and I think the two the two challenges for Biden, uh, the culture wars. I mean, if you look at the polling of these Midwestern swing voters, they are very culturally traditionalist. They hate political correctness. A lot of the, the excesses on the left would be toxic if Biden kind of goes along that path. You know, there are a lot of different ways that could happen. And also the energy, the energy, the, the you know, the environmentalism versus energy. Like in the Midwest was a, uh, when, when Democrats passed cap and trade in 2010, uh, it was the Midwest where, where there was a huge revolt politically. And that's, that fueled the losses in that midterm election. Yeah. So I, I think Biden has an opening on sort of the core issues that really most Americans care about. Uh, but, but there's so many traps that, that, um, that are, that, that the left is, is laying for him. And I didn't even mention the, the Supreme Court packing, uh, that, which he, I think he punted a little bit this week, um, trying yeah. to have a commission and stuff. But, you know, there are a lot of things that if he gets distracted from the main challenges that I think the, most of the country wants him to deal with, um, that that's where the problems would start. All right, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. But I do have one important last question for you. As you said, you're a big sports fan and we've had kind of a weird sports year. Maybe most upsetting to me, we didn't have the Olympics. What is the sport that is not one of our big three, quasi four, if you include hockey, that you wish were in that pantheon of things that all Americans sort of watched in a water cooler style? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> um, how about tennis? Does really? That, does that count? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, that is the one sport where when you have Wimbledon and you have, like, I, I, will, I will definitely, like, tune in just, just, uh, to, to, to get a break from, but, but, you know, I, I am like a big four type of, I mean, I will watch, um, nonstop. I, mean, I, don't, I don't watch much Netflix. I don't watch much, you know, that many movies these days. It's literally like, you know, basketball, baseball. I mean, it's been, it's been a smorgasbord of sports these last couple of months because they've all been sandwiched it's true. together. Do you wish you had a red zone for uh, another sport? Well, I do have the red, the football red zone is invaluable. I, 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 of course, um, I, you know, it's weird. I'm a huge baseball fan and they, they have something called strike zone. It's like on my, but they don't, they only have it like twice a week. So they, they basically do what red zone does and it's great. It's actually really, really useful, but it's only on like once or, or twice a week and I could use it. I mean, you know, it, it would be something that they should expand, but um, no, I mean, politics and sports are my like two. I mean, when I need a break from everything that's going on with the day job and with, with what's going on in the, the presidential race, I mean, watching the world series this week is going to be a good good thing to go to. Steve, what's your sport that you wish everyone else were as into as you? Badminton. <laughs> no. No, you're right. Can you imagine a red zone for badminton? Man? I mean, that would be pretty great. No, I mean, look, I I remain I grew up playing soccer. I remain a a a pretty big soccer fan. I I still follow to the extent that I can the the La Liga, which is the top league in in Spain. I have a team there, Atletico Madrid. We got smoked in the Champions League yesterday, so it's a little bit of a a sad day for me. Um, so probably that. I also think volleyball. I played competitive volleyball growing up, um, and it's such a fun sport to to watch and such a fun sport to play. Whether you're talking about on the beach or um, you know traditional with the six people on a team, it's great. I would love to see more competitive volleyball. I'd go and watch. You know, if there were a professional volleyball league, I would have season tickets to whatever team was in my area. Despite having no interest in car racing whatsoever, 
I think that short track speed skating could be a great American sport for us to all get into because it has sort of the violence of some of the other sports that we like <laughs> and the quickness. And I, I don't know, like I'm, I'm an original Apollo Ono fan. So that's, I think that's what I would pick. <laughs> Your curling guy is going to be very upset. Oh, I mean, I think everyone already is watching curling. So that's like the big four, right? We were, you know, it's baseball, football, basketball, and curling. Okay, good point. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> uh, Coach Phil is the best. Yeah, Josh? Don't sleep on ping pong if you've seen Forrest Gump and uh, <laughs> True. table tennis. That, 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 yeah, that's skill. That's skill. True. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Thank you, Josh, for coming on over. And uh, Josh said he had some foxes in his backyard making uh, a run for it while we were on the pod. So hopefully all is wow, well. That's, no that's good Fox news. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm, and I'm doing Fox in 20 minutes. Come on. So maybe that's an omen. So. But, um, all right. We'll see you guys again next week. 